You see, we're on a mission from God. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is someone that I met through a mutual friend, but have just fallen in love with her. I think she's one of the coolest people I know now. And so we had to have her on as a guest. And actually, Naamo, she, uh, you're on before Brie. Brie's, okay. <laughs> I'm actually recording with Brie in a couple of weeks. So uh, sorry, Brie. <laughs> I should. Um, I, yeah, I should have given her uh, for her. Uh, all right. Uh, this is Nama Haviv, and she is a resident of Los Angeles. And uh, should I call you a sustainable food activist? An anti-hunger activist is probably closer. Yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. Also, you are you have a Sephardic Jewish heritage, which means you have right. Is that right? So you, you have a lot of really interesting cuisine. Um, I'm food obsessed. I think. Yeah. 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 You had me to dinner at your house one time and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That's the reaction I want when people come to my house for dinner. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So let's start with my icebreakers. Uh, I, I always start my podcast by asking three icebreaker questions and they're pretty easy. So you don't have to worry, but I think that they're a good way to just sort of get to know you. First question I have is, what is the last thing that you watched on TV? We watched, oh, we watched Kiki's Delivery Service mm. last night, which is a little anime. Um, it's a Studio Gilby anime my daughter's obsessed with anime. So this is what we watched. But that was us taking a break from watching binge watching Community, which we've been watching with oh, my Is it good? It's so good. Okay. The, the show. I mean, there are a few things that are like a little dated in it. It's from the like mid 2000, like 2010s team. Uh-huh. So it's like just old enough where you're like, oh, they, they don't understand the last four years of Donald Trump. <laughs> and also their phones still flip up. Oh, right? like, how charming. <laughs> how char- <laughs> Lena saw their phones and she's like, what's happening here? <laughs> amazing uh and so you have you have a you have one daughter I have one daughter and how old is she she's 11 11 so does that inform most of your television viewing um until recently it didn't Uh because she would go to bed at a decent hour but now she stays up later than I do which is like that's a very low bar I like to go to bed at like 9 10 I'm an (laughs) early riser Uh so I wake up I wake up at like 5 a.m. just wow. naturally. And that means that I just fall asleep at 10 at the latest. Um, so, but she, she's like, her father is like a night owl. So like, she wants to watch the same things that we, there's no like two hours where she's asleep and we can watch the grown up shows. Right. You know? Yeah. All right. All right. That's cool. Some of the best memories I have are just like binge watching stuff with my my kids though when they were tweens and teens because you know it's just like one one year you know how um during ramadan a lot of times we will eat at night because we don't eat all day so we'll stay up 
and eat at night. Well, a couple of years ago, Ramadan happened during the summer. And so we like I wasn't working and the kids were out of school. And so basically we just flipped our schedules. Like we were up all night and then we would sleep through the day. That's awesome. Kind of but like we, <laughs> we went through the office that summer on Netflix and it was like a so huge funny. bonding experience for us. Like we still are so bonded over that. Yeah. Yeah. We recently just finished Parks and Rec. Oh like, yeah. And it was like now, and, and it was filmed all over LA. Mm-hmm. So we've like driven places and Lena's like, oh my God, that's the something, something. <laughs> she has an eye for these things and I don't. Uh-huh. And it's just when we're like driving to like run an errand. Uh-huh. So she totally sees it. So yeah. yeah. We totally did Parks and Rec too. Like we bonded over that one. That and it's fun because now we have like all these inside family jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Second icebreaker question. What is the last book that you read? Oh my God. Okay. This is embarrassing. I think the last book that I read like fully cover to cover was, oh no, it's better now. I was going to say that it was Russian roulette. I don't remember who it was by, but it was the like TikTok breakdown of everything that happened in the Russia scandal, Oh, (laughs) which I was. Why is that embarrassing? Because of the level of obsession I had with the Russia scandal, like it was, it was a daily thing. Like I listened, there were like several podcasts in my queue that were just about the Mueller investigation. It was pathetic. Um, But actually I finished reading um, Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. It's his like deep dive history. I sound very boring with these picks that it's all nonfiction. I swear to God, I listen, I read fiction every once in a while. No, I actually, I I almost exclusively read nonfiction at this point, which is kind of depressing. I feel like I do miss reading fiction, but I, there's so many things that I'm interested in right now that are nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that I feel like I don't know enough about. Right. Right. That like, I, you know. Yeah. And I went through a real long like dry period. Like there were, there was about, especially after my kids were born, probably like seven years that I didn't read a book, like a yeah. book. I was just like so busy and so harried and so tired. And then, um, and then kind of, I resurfaced <laughs> intellectually <laughs> and, uh, and then I was like, oh shit, there's all this stuff that's happening and that's happened and that's been written. And um, and I wanted to stay relevant. And so I, you know, had to do all this reading. Plus, just like, there are things that I want to accomplish in life right now. And it yeah. requires that I learn some new competencies. Yes, so. that makes total sense. I also, I had like a pretty long dry spell. I think also, I think mothers go through dry spells where uh-huh. like, it takes time to learn not to supplement your supplement your own needs and intellectual curiosity to your children's uh-huh. I think right like uh-huh. so much of Lena's early life I was like okay I need her to learn right all of these things um and the thing that brought me back was audiobooks actually like me too able, like, walk around the house and listen to stuff yes. and sit. yeah 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 100 percent in fact it was like these um it was actually, there was a point when I was like, I, I really need to get out of the house, right? And mm-hmm. I really need to get exercise and I just need to like move my body around. So I started going on walks. And then after a while, I was like, you know, I'm going for two, three, four mile walks. Yeah. And I'm like, why? I, I should just listen to some books. And then that's when I really got hooked on them. Yeah, they're so good. Mm-hmm. They're so good. And sometimes like I found myself 
like with I so I listened to half of Stamped from the beginning and I had the book because I re, there were like moments where it's a it's like a deep dive into anti-racist history in the United States right and like every everywhere that like the foundations of white supremacy and how they were built yeah. and you know it's it's academic it's very readable but it's academic enough where I needed to like revisit passages so having the book and the audiobook at the same time where I could like scooch through the parts that were easy and then like sit down and go back through and take notes like I yep. was in college yeah like that combo was great um but when I've listened to fiction like I don't know when there's a good narrator I get really into it seriously Seriously, right? like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to get um, like books on cassette from the library and almost every night growing up, I would listen to a, a book oh, or, so or some kind of drama on tape. And so I and, and I think me, I don't know if it's that or that I'm just like a strong auditory learner, but mm -hmm. I just re I retain information better. I process it better when I'm actually listening to it. Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. It's ah, I love it. Cool. I love it. All right. Okay. Good answers. And then the last question is, what did you have for breakfast today? Um, I don't know if I call it breakfast because I, I like, well, yeah, it was like 1030. So it's brunch. Um, I made like a kale lentil salad a couple days ago because it's a, specifically because it's a salad that like lasts several days mm -hmm. and I need to have something in the fridge that I can eat that's not trash that mm -hmm. like when I don't know what to eat it's just there and I'm like okay well I made this so that I can eat it whenever mm -hmm. and it's, there. Mm -hmm. but it's really good it takes like a solid half hour to make like a giant thing of it but then yeah. you have it for days and days and days and yeah no one else sounds really amazing it, so I, yeah it's really good <laughs> yeah. No, I'm the same way. I if I have to like prepare for my hunger because I actually can go a long time without eating, but then when it's time to eat, like I will just open mm -hmm. the refrigerator and shovel anything I see into my face. Exactly right. And it's that ugly. is exactly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I do. Yeah. I find myself like I need to start thinking about dinner every day. And thank God I work from home now as I think most of us who can do um but like I need to start thinking about dinner at like three right 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 and like and I need to have whatever the proteins are like already yep out and defrosted so I've realized that like what doesn't work for me is having things in the freezer like I have to just every weekend mm -hmm. buy the protein like all of the I don't do any meal planning but I'm like okay I'm going to, we're going to have something with ground turkey. We're going to have this, to we're going to have some tofu thing and we're going to have like right. these tacos in the end. Right. Right. And then like anything else that I can come up with in the pantry, but yeah, I need to have it out. Here's the thing. And perhaps you can appreciate this. Maybe not. I don't know. You're, so you are a food person. Like you are a, like a, a real food person and an excellent cook. And, you know, clearly you have lots of, um, joy that you get from experimenting and stuff. And I love that too. I like to experiment in the kitchen and everything. But the problem is that cooking as the, as a chore, cooking as a daily thing is not fun. Right. And this is the thing that I always like argue with my husband about, like, cause he will be like, he makes a, he's like, I'll make 
dinner and uh, he announces and then he will like go to the store and spend you know a hundred dollars on ingredients for a single meal and come home and like spend all this time like creating this meal and then he doesn't understand why I hate cooking every day and I'm like okay first of all do that try to plan out for not only you know one meal but like six meals for the same budget that you have to feed to three other people who are really picky Oh, no, are they all really picky? Well, they're just very opinionated. I mean, they'll eat it begrudgingly, but then, but they'll act like I'm forcing them to, you know, do something horrible by eating something they don't like. Do you know that there's, there's a rule in my, in our house? And I about, I basically said my house because, (laughs) because it is my kitchen. Uh Um, And I cannot blame my husband for not cooking because I basically, (laughs) like this, it's my, it's my room. That's my room. Right. Um, but the rule is that you can either tell me that the food I made was good or you can tell me that it's good for again. That's it. What does that Those mean? are the choices. Good or good for again. Good for like, again. As in, it's as good. in like, I would like to have this another time. Ah, so if like you're that. just telling me that it's good, it's like, it's fine. I'm going to eat it. It's fine. It's edible. <laughs> <laughs> you are not allowed to say anything else. That's it. Good I truly good love this. Again. <laughs> I, I'm gonna have you come and give a uh, 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 workshop at my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I also I also live with two people who are not picky. Like I Lena, we've tried to raise her to like be a what we call a food explorer, where mm-hmm. she like you know every time when she was a kid, like she had to take at least one bite. And we just, I I am a very adventurous eater. My husband is a fairly adventurous eater. Like he follows me in the adventure and he'll try anything. It just mm-hmm. doesn't occur to him to try the things unless they're in front of him already. So Lena got the like adventurous and eating bug. There are definitely things that she doesn't like. Yeah, yeah. But then she also knows that she's, she needs to eat a few bites and then like go make herself a sandwich if she doesn't right. like it. Like that, that's on her. But this is the thing that I've made. Yeah. Amazing. So um, my husband, you know, is South Asian and he... If it were up to him, we would eat South Asian food every day, right? Mm-hmm. But, and I don't mind it. Like, I mean, it's heavy on the meat and stuff, but there's plenty of vegetarian options and it's okay. It's just, that's not how I grew up eating. And so I don't, I mean, and the flavors are particularly like heavy. And sometimes I just yeah. want very simple food, right? I'm a white yeah. person. Uh, but my kids are also raised here. And so my my daughter likes uh, the desi food, uh, you know, she's fine with it. And she's the least picky of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, my son, speaking of Parks and Rec, you know, uh, Rob Lowe's character? Yes. Oh my gosh. That is my son. Oh no. 100%. He thinks he, his body is a temple. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> he like texts me these long grocery list items that he needs. And, you know, like he wants to eat only certain cuts of meat and like he's just oh my like, god oh it's ridiculous it's no ridiculous. it's ridiculous yeah I'm like buddy he's gonna have a rude awakening now he's like when he goes to college he's gonna be eating ramen and he's gonna like he's gonna <laughs> wake up and smell the coffee <laughs> is he will drink well is he allowed to have coffee? no he doesn't drink coffee. <laughs> he won't touch caffeine yeah <laughs> it's ridiculous Oh my gosh. Yes. God forbid my child ever 
winds up but like the day the day that my daughter like didn't like soccer uh-huh. was the, my best day <laughs> right like she got out on we were like put her in soccer because like you have to put your child in some kind of sport right uh-huh. walks out on the field she kicks the ball a couple of times and then she turned around walked back to me and was like okay I'm done Excellent. 10 minutes 10 minutes on the soccer field. She's like, I'm done. We can go. I'm like, but we paid for, we paid for a season. And she's like, I don't see why. <laughs> like, why? I didn't say that, but that was her five-year-old face was like, why would you do something so stupid? She doesn't like sports. What is she into? So she, she, she wound up liking karate, although she oh. quit. Yeah. Hmm. So, so she wound up liking karate, which was great because then like, she was really only competing against herself. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when she quit, it was about a year ago. And it was because her karate instructor got like very, very into getting the kids to go to tournaments and like wanted um, her to. And then she was like, I, because no, what she's like me, she's anti competitive. I hate right. to compete. She hates to compete. She just is not into it. So she quit. She's been, they're actually doing karate now on Zoom with my oh, husband fine. and daughter are doing karate with one of her old instructors who also doesn't like tournaments. <laughs> on zoom nice excellent yeah. uh no i think uh, that's good like legos like uh, drawing legos are nice yeah legos are great excellent is she so you guys are all are you all at home now yeah with covid yeah yeah how's that been i mean as good as it can be we are lucky enough to have the like space to each have our own places in the house. So this room that you can see is actually a shed in our backyard, which we affectionately call the shed quarters. Back when, <laughs> back when I was running um, Pansy Foundation US, which is like all of this, the Congo work that I was doing, this, we ran it out of here. So I was the executive director. So this was the Pansy headquarters, this room nice. in the backyard. So I have a two minute commute past my, in, through my backyard into my office. Um, my husband has taken over the guest room, which is no longer a guest room. It's now like solidly a lab. There are like a bajillion 3D printers and wow. circuit board makers and like the, I don't know. I would tell you what he does, but I don't understand it. So I can't. <laughs> um, and then my daughter is in her room um, yeah. and we have a lovely backyard and we have a lovely neighborhood that we can walk around in. And like, we were very lucky to have like indoor and outdoor space so that we can get away from each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's right. That's right. It's been really strange, but I, I do think that us all having our own space in the last year has been huge for us because initially I thought we were going to kill each other when we came home yeah. last March, but it's actually been good like for our family. Yeah. yeah uh, I, we're definitely, I think, closer as a family. Really? Really nice. I think um Staying, I think anybody who stays married gets an award in general. And then anyone who stays married through this pandemic gets like two awards, I guess, uh-huh. one of which is staying married. Um, <laughs> but like, I actually think that it's, it's doing wonders for, not that my marriage was like rocky at all before this, but like, mm-hmm. we, we are definitely closer because like, you can't, you can't avoid any issues that come up. Right. Right. So like any issues that come up, you actually have to deal with them and you have to deal with them productively because there's nowhere else to go. (laughs) (laughs) I 
can't like run to my best friend's house and complain about anything. I can't like. Right, right. No, you have to just deal with it, which is probably how we should all be living anyway. Right, right. Somebody else brought this up a couple weeks ago on this podcast where they were saying, you know, this is probably just what it was like for most of human history. Like, right. We couldn't, like most of the time in history, people didn't have car. You couldn't even get across. Like you think about how much mile, how many miles you travel every week in a normal year. And the average person never did that in history, right? Like we were all just kind of stuck in one spot with maybe the occasional once or twice in a lifetime long distance travel. Yeah. And I mean, I have to say just the like not having a commute. I had such a commute to work with. Oh my my God. With my job, my office is our our headquarters. Our zone headquarters are twenty two miles from my house. Ugh, which in is LA, Los those are LA miles. Yeah, in LA. So and it's like three freeways. If I was going to take a freeway, right? Like which you I cannot do because of the traffic. So like I I was working this schedule that meant that I just like barely saw my family. Yeah, because I would leave home at six o'clock in the morning. Ugh. Leave at 6am so that I could work seven to three 30 and be on the road by three 30. But if I left work, if I left work at three 30, the earliest I got home was five. Oh, so like ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So now I don't have two, three hours of commuting a day. Right. I feel the same and way. I feel the same way. Plus I feel like not only that, yes. So not only are you, have you cut out like all that, all that time, but then once you once you got home, you would have to cook and do all these other things. So exactly. now I'm at my desk while dinner is cooking. That's exactly right. right. That's, That's exactly right. Like five o'clock, I'm just done. Right. Done for the day with everything. Right. Now I'm at my desk and I suddenly remember that I have zero underwear to wear the next day. <laughs> And I can go put a load of laundry in, right? Like, no, that's happened to all of us. Right? Like, I'm going to have to wear a bathing suit tomorrow if I don't do my laundry. Yeah, that's exactly But right. I, now I can just do it. Uh-huh. Or text yeah. my husband and tell him, because he's in the house, right. to go put a load of laundry in. Right. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. And I think that it, it completely underlines how spectacularly shitty our society has been. Truly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we were talking at work that I feel like I'm, I, I'm, this isn't the first time I'm sure this has even been said on this podcast, but like that the pandemic sort of pushed us forward in some ways, five, 10 years in a direction that we were always going to go, but just shoved all of us into that direction. Yeah. And so for my boss, who is a very in-person person, mm-hmm. which I understand because I am also mostly an in-person person, she relies a lot on just like reading a room and making eye contact and being able to read people's body language. And she is very good at it. And she was for years, as long as I've known her and I've known her since I haven't worked at Mazon since this long. I've been there for four years now, but I've known my boss since 2007. And as long as I've known her, she did not believe in remote work. She like, didn't like it when people were out of the office. Right. She like, didn't like any of that. And now we've had this like proof of concept. And she's like, oh, no, I really can be in relationship mm-hmm. with these people. We've even hired new staff and she has a good relationship with those staff members. 
um, even though she's never met them in person. So like we've, we've been shoved into this like five years from now, 10 years from now when like people, like especially in LA, no one can afford to live where the Mazon office is. Right. If they're just, especially if you're just moving to LA or just getting started in your career, like I live 20 miles away from the office because we can't afford to live on that other side of Los Angeles. Right. Right. Um, and if we were to buy a house now, we couldn't afford to live where I currently live. We'd have to go another 20 miles. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm hoping that some of this stuff lasts. Like we had, we had a Jewish clergy justice mission this year. It was our third year. And in prior years, we would bring rabbis and cantors to Washington, D.C. to lobby on the Hill with us, you know, do a little bit of like a couple of learning days. It was a fly-in, like mm-hmm. learning days. And then we would hit the Hill on one day to lobby for anti-hunger policies. Um, and we would get like 15 rabbis each year, which we thought was really great, right? Yeah. People like yeah. paying their way. It would cost us like $35,000 in food and beverage and in the hotel spaces and da, 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 da. And this year it cost us like a few thousand dollars for like a virtual event company. And we had 75 rabbis and cantors wow. join us because there was no barrier for entry right. on their time and on their money. Right. Right. Like right. the logistics of traveling to DC weren't there and the finances of traveling to That's DC. That's right. That's weren't right. there and so now we're like okay I guess the Jewish clergy justice mission is just going to be virtual yeah like, yep even yep. when we're out of the pandemic it's really hard once you and and I've had the same experience like my uh the organization I work for for a lot like they were really most of the leadership there was really opposed to work from home right yeah and then all of a sudden they just sent all of us home 500 people in this organization so yeah yeah and and it's working out and people are really liking it and suddenly we're like do we really i mean it is going to be really hard to justify the extraordinary expense involved with you know creating space that is largely empty <laughs> for half the time because you're only there for like eight nine hours a day yeah. I mean I don't know I, I I I absolutely agree when we're talking about resources there's a limited amount of resources and are we using it smartly I would much rather they give me a you know a allowance every year to buy equipment or whatever um that I can use at home and just take everything virtually which is not to say that we have to like even like after the pandemic I would love to do, you know, the same way that we do conferences, like bring mm-hmm. staff together or bring teams together, or like every six weeks, have your team come in and work for three solid days together, uh, you know, in a conference center and like just bond. We're all in cubes and offices anyway. You don't need to be sitting there with people all day, every day doing work. To yeah. do your I job. mean, I find that at least for my work, what I really do miss are those like interstitial moments. Yeah. Right. Where like I run into somebody in the kitchen and then I say, oh, Sarah, you know, I meant to talk to you about this one thing. Let's just hash it out right now. And then Abby walks in and we're like, oh, this is the part that we need you for. And, you know, and then we settle something in five minutes. We're like these days I need to plan out to talk to Sarah about the thing. And then I need to call Abby and then I need to like and it winds up being another meeting on my calendar. Mm -hmm. And I have so many 
so many meetings all the time that I barely have time to like actually get my work done. So that part, losing that interstitial bit, but even that is kind of leveling off a little bit. Like Mm -hmm. we've all learned to use our IM system a little bit better. We've all learned to text each other a little bit better um, and to know who to loop in on things. So like that's smoothing out a little, but I would love some kind of like hybrid thing because I am also an in-person person, right? Like I do, I, I feel like there's some kind of alchemy that happens when you are face to face with someone that just like zoom can't replace it. Right. Like I'm looking at you, but I'm not making eye contact. Like I know I'm not actually making eye contact with you and it's not, and whatever for pheromones that we release, like aren't flying through the air. Like it's not, yeah, the yeah. Same. um, it's a good substitute. It's a great substitute, but yeah. it's not the same. So like, I would love to be able to be like, okay, these two days every week, I'm going into the office. And these three days, I'm going to be at home. Yep, and if you exactly. need to see me in person, be there these two days. And right. also, like, we're expecting everyone in the office this these couple days every month. Yeah. Everyone. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just a matter of creative problem solving. Yeah. The point being, though, that we can do it. It's just we that I, I think there was just like you were saying before such resistance to it and I actually do think that that's right I think we you know this is another thing that I've been talking to people a lot about lately is that change is so um, scary and you can't really um, you can't really convince people without being able to model it and show them well in this case we didn't you know there, there was no model per se like we didn't really know what it would look like but now just by force of necessity we now have a model for what it can look like that's right yeah that's right talk to me about mazon so mazon is a national anti-hunger advocacy organization we come at our anti-hunger work from a jewish perspective and from the perspective that we need a justice-based approach to addressing hunger in this country um that there's no way we could ever food bank our way out of hunger. Charity is just not enough. Charity is wonderful. We do not mean to minimize what charity does. But, you know, before the pandemic, there were 40 million people hungry in the United States. That was, uh, it's more than the population of Canada. The population of Canada is 38 million people. Wow. That's, that was one in eight people in the United States. Like that's a massive, massive, broad problem. Yeah. And the charitable food sector in the United States, which is huge, by the way, it's, it, but it provides about $5 billion of food assistance every single year. And that can support people in like a couple million, a couple, a couple meals a year uh-huh, for 40 uh-huh. million people. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's just not going to cut it. And like, think of the food banks and food pantries in your neighborhood. You could triple their budgets the budgets that they're already struggling to raise, mm-hmm. right? You could triple them and they still wouldn't be me- meeting anywhere near the needs in this country. So the right. only institution that has the scope and the scale to meet the needs of people who are hungry in this country is the government. So we focus there. Okay. Um, protecting, I'm protecting wherever possible, strengthening the safety net. Okay. And the organization, when did it start? This is our 36th year. It's our double high birthday for those of your listeners who know 
anything about Jewish numerology, the word chai in uh-huh. Hebrew is, is the word for life. Um, and it has a numeric value. Uh, we assign a numeric value to each letter. So it has the numeric value of 18. So this is our 36th birthday, our double life birthday. Nice. Yeah, 1985. I did know that because I worked in nonprofits for many years and often we would get um, donations in denominations of 18 uh, or multiples of 18. And and, and I remember initially being like, what is this? What is that? Why is this happening? And then one of my Jewish friends explained that to me. Yeah. Uh, We do a lot of $18 giving (laughs) multiples, like $180 giving. And yeah. yeah. Okay. So what, what is that? um, What is the, you know, you say you try to impact the government, but what does that actually look like? in practical terms, aside from like you talked to me about your clergy day up in Washington, but what other things do you do? So we do, you can sort of put everything that we do in kind of four buckets. Um, The first thing that we do, and really the niche that Mazon fills in the anti-hunger space, other than being the only Jewish organization solely focused on anti-hunger work in this country, Um, The niche that we fill is that we do a lot of work to research and then surface and spotlight populations in this country that are that have unique barriers in accessing food assistance, but who are otherwise being overlooked and underserved by government programs and by the rest of the anti hunger community. So we were really the first to start raising the alarm about um, hunger among currently serving military families and veterans, for example. We do a lot of work on single mothers because, uh-huh. surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, uh, hunger is a gendered issue. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Who, who would have guessed? Who knew, right? Who knew? And then, of course, the intersections with, with racial inequality are just unbelievably right. profound there. Um, not just there, but across the board. We, we, are, we were for a long time, and now we are thankfully not the only, but we were the first... Uh, non-native ally in the native farm bill coalition because we do a ton of work with native communities on uh, about hunger not just hunger but food sovereignty on tribal lands um we did a lot of work uh in the last several years and are now backburnering a little bit of um our work on hunger among college students we do stuff around lgbtq older adults who their ability to access um, food assistance is unique to other older adults and also unique to other LGBT folks. So they are a particular subset that we're concerned about. Um, So we do a lot of work to just kind of find these populations in the first place, figure out policies, figure out what is standing in their way for them to get the food assistance that they need or, you know, or why they're being driven to poverty and hunger in the first place and figure out public policy solutions that would alleviate their, their problems, alleviate the issues standing in their way and like mitigate the barriers that are standing in their way. Um, so, and, and, then, and then we do the lobbying and the advocacy work um, to put those public policies into place. We write legislation, we, um, we work with legislators to champion those pieces of legislation and push them forward. We do that mostly at the federal level, although we've done a little bit of state work. Um, 
And basically our goal is here is to raise these issues to the level of a national agenda. And mm -hmm. it's a huge success if like a, an even bigger organization starts doing this work also, then we know that we're doing our job well. We don't right. always back off of the issue, um, but we know that when we've caught the attention of the bigger organizations in the field that like we've done something really well. Um, we do a lot of education and outreach. A mm -hmm. lot of that is centered in the Jewish community, but not only the Jewish community. Um, and that's really focused on, um, on a portion of our theory of change. That is that if, if what we want to achieve are policies at the federal level that are devoid of judgment, right? We don't want the government to be the arbiter of who does and doesn't deserve assistance. Right, in right. right. Like, I don't care what the circumstances are that have brought you to this moment of needing assistance. If you need assistance, you should get assistance. The end. Great, right. Um, but one of the biggest barriers standing in the way of those, of getting non-judgmental policies, because our policies right now are super judgmental, <laughs> um, like just like deeply judgmental, um, is the like very real stigma that exists in this country about poverty, yep. people who are struggling with poverty and the programs that serve people who are struggling with poverty. And that's like external shame and internal shame yes. that people feel. So that like when they are in a position of need, they don't want to access government assistance because then people will know right. that they need help. Right. Um, and and that's, that's its own kind of devastating. So a lot of our education and outreach work is really focused on trying to dismantle this culture of stigma and doing big kind of national education programs to dismantle this. Um, and also to try to shift the narrative in this country to understand that like hunger is something that could happen to anybody, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And when we were talking about how the pandemic has like pushed us forward five years, I would trade us winning this argument in a second for not having ever had the pandemic. But, you know, I don't love to call on silver linings, but a silver lining of the pandemic has been that like, it has been made very visible to this country all of a sudden yeah. that people were one or two missed paychecks away from complete and total financial ruin. Right, right. Through no fault of their own. Right. Through no fault of their own. And that not having a baseline safety net for their health care imperils all of us. Right. Agreed. Right. So all of a sudden, the vast majority of this country, thankfully, understands these two principles and understands that the government really should be the provider of these, of this safety net. And that the fact that we don't have the safety net, that we have managed to dissolve and weaken the safety net over the last 40 years, um, really since the 1980s, means that so many more of us fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. yes. Right? Yes. So, uh, so we do a lot of that education work. Um, and we do that, you know, with the Jewish community, with legislators, with the media, with anyone who will listen to us, really. Um, and then finally, we do a lot of capacity building, um, which takes the form of grants, but it's grants specifically to organizations in the right now, the 13 most food insecure states in this country, um, to make sure that they have the ability to like, take the risk of doing advocacy and public policy work. Yeah. Um, because we know that that's, that's how we make long-term change, right? Like right. we gave an organization in Mississippi a $110,000 grant 
And with that money, they were able to hire the first two people in that state to ever, ever work on anti-hunger policy. Wow. Full-time. One full-time person, one part-time person. Yeah. There was no one else in the state working full-time on anti-hunger policy. There were plenty of food banks and food pantries, nowhere near meeting the needs, of course, because no, no charitable organization can fully meet the needs. Within a year, those two people in Mississippi for the like first two people in the state working on anti-hunger policy identified a huge problem, which is that anyone with a drug felony in Mississippi was banned forever, lifetime ban from accessing SNAP, which is our food stamps program. What? Yeah. If you had a drug felony, you couldn't access SNAP as if being hungry was going to, yeah, because being hungry was going to make it easier for you. Oh my God. Kick the habit, right? Like just, (sighs) by the way, Mississippi opioid epidemic. Wow. Right? Wow. This is what I'm talking about in terms of judgmental policies where there's, there's this myth that there is a deserving poor versus an undeserving poor, right? And people who had drug felonies to the Mississippi government were undeserving of tax money. I mean, that goes beyond judgment. That that's, that's, it's cruelty. cruelty. Yes. It's inhumane. Right. Yeah. Wow. And the cruelty is the point. Right. Um, because you know, that's the, those are the tough love people as if that has ever brought anybody out of addiction ever. Right. Um, so within a year, these two people in Mississippi wrote and passed legislation that overturned this lifetime ban. And that meant that in a year for $110,000, we got 90,000 people in Mississippi access to SNAP. Wow. Where they never had access to SNAP before. Like we couldn't have fed 90,000 people one meal for $110,000. Right, 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 right. So that's the kind of capacity building that we are doing now in the, we're now in 13, the 13 most food insecure states in the country, which I'm very proud of. That's amazing. How large is your team? We are 22 people, Wow! I think in three in, we're mostly, we're headquartered in Los Angeles. So the vast majority of our staff is here. We've got four, five people, one, two, three, four, four people, I think in DC. Um, and then one staff person in uh, Jerusalem because we wow. also do hunger in Israel. Wow. Yeah. That is actually, that's an incredible amount of work for that small of group of people so it really is wow small but mighty <laughs> okay so then in addition to that in addition to Mazon, you I seem to recall you telling me about some other project that you were you had started am I am I imagining this project that I had started well I did so Mazon is the first time that I've done domestic work okay or I don't remember no, when you came out here, I was already at Mason. Okay. No, I think I was thinking of the bus. Did you do a bus? Oh, a hunger bus? you did a truck. Right. This wasn't my project. This was um, this was Mason's project. Okay. We okay. Had, we had a, an exhibit. We still have actually an exhibit called "This Is Hunger," mm-hmm. um, which was kind of like an experiential, part museum, part theater exhibit, where um, built into an eighteen wheeler semi-truck that we drove around the country for yeah. 18 months, 16 months. Um, and you, you know, you would like walk into the truck 
and there was like a giant dining room table and you would sit down in it. And it felt like you were, the experience made you feel as if you were at the table with six different people who had experienced food insecurity. The goal was just to kind of humanize this issue and to like make it clear that this really can happen to anybody out of a billion different circumstances. Wow. Um, and that exhibit was really very powerful. Uh, I think 15,000 people saw it during its 16 month run, which wow. doesn't sound like a ton of people except that only 30 people could be in a truck at a time, max. So yeah. it's actually a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we decommissioned the truck cause it cost just like an appalling amount of money to keep on the road. <laughs> the gas alone and also like the logistics of driving it into parking lots up hills in the winter was like yeah it was like a lot it was a lot of staff time on just those logistics yeah um so but we took the exhibit out and built it into a permanent space here in LA in the valley um and have been running basically like a little mini museum in the Mm -hmm. valley for it was going for about six months and then COVID hit yeah 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 it's now closed, but we have a digital version, thankfully. So you can see a little 13 minute movie version of oh. it, which is cool. We'll, we'll make sure and provide a link to that. Yeah. So people can I see it with you. my show notes. Okay. Um, I think that's really interesting. I love, this is the, one of the things I really like about you is how creative you are as a thinker. And I don't know if you consider yourself an artist, but I think you have very much an artist's soul in the way that you approach uh-huh. things right? Like you, you, you are really creative. The other thing that I just, I must have people know about you is this tiny museum started. (laughs) And this is is exactly the same kind of thing. Like I, I don't understand how you, how this came about. It ended (laughs) up being one of the (laughs) boredom is a really, really great motivator. Uh, But it ended up being like one of the most delightful and yeah uh, like joyful parts of being stuck at home in the last year is your weekly updates about it. Can you tell my listeners about your tiny museum? Yeah. Um it is something that has brought me so much joy. And I will say like, it probably wouldn't have happened if not for the pandemic. Uh-huh. So that's like, and it's something that I will continue, I hope long after the pandemic. But I am, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm, I'm obsessed with roadside attractions. I'm not. I just, I love them. I have like designed entire road trips just to go to like some place in the middle of the desert that has declared itself to be the center of the world I like (laughs) we went there it was amazing really oh my god it was so good it was so good because anybody can make anybody can decide that they are the center of the world but this dude bought 240 acres of California desert (laughs) built a pyramid and declared it like like it required intention right and that to me is like art yeah like yes this isn't this is just intention like my intention is what makes this the center of the world and he got the international geographic society or something to recognize it as the official center (laughs) just like that's the coolest thing anyway so i love roadside attractions and you know we were facing a summer where like normally i would take five five to ten days off and we would plan like an insane road trip yeah and go to a billion different places and we couldn't do it and i was really bummed about it 
And um, my husband and I were taking walks every morning during the pandemic uh, in the early days. I still do it. Uh-huh. Um, he, he doesn't because I was doing it really early. In and I saw like a display case on the side of the road that I thought somebody was just getting rid of. And I was like, wouldn't it be funny if we took that home and built our own roadside attraction? Because we can't go anywhere. So maybe now I can just have my own roadside attraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always wanted. And maybe, and he was like, well, what would it be? And I was like, I don't know. We'd like get like a tiny museum or something. It has like three shelves. We do like an exhibit on each shelf, just like tiny things. Yeah. Um, and he was like, that sounds ridiculous, but okay. We went back later that afternoon to like collect it with our car and it turned out nobody was giving it away. It was like, it was, somebody was using it out, oh, in, no. front of, out in front of their, it was actually in front of a business that had just been shuttered because of the pandemic. This was in May. So it was really early days. Everything was closed, closed, closed. Uh-huh. Um, so it was just a display case out in front of this business. And I didn't, it was a business that looked like a house, whatever. Um, <laughs> But I told him, I was like, I'm not done with this idea. And I want a display case for my birthday. <laughs> we bought me one. So we bought me one for my birthday. And uh, where does like one a, buy a display case? On offer up for 50 bucks. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Yep. Uh, I bought some velvet contact paper and decked out the inside with gray velvet. So it looks like very classy as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> like glass shelves very pretty um and then I just started thinking about like stuff I could put in it that would I just declared it a tiny museum and at first like I didn't know what I was gonna call it but um my husband he like leveled the ground out in front of our house and put the display case there and then just put a sign on it that said tiny museum coming soon so that nobody would steal it and then I was like okay well that's the perfect name I'm gonna call it the tiny um and we opened July 4th weekend of last year uh, with two exhibits and a gift shop. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and the exhibits were cute. I'm like very proud. And we've since had several other exhibits. We're on, I think our fourth exhibit now. Um, and but the gift shop has really taken on a life of its own. Yes. Um, so I opened the gift shop with, it was just, it's like a little, it was like a little box that you could flip open. Um, and the sign on the gift shop said that everything was free um, and that it was filled with pet rocks and they were all named Dwayne because oh, yes. the other thing that I'm obsessed with is Dwayne Ralph Johnson. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> is the best. And rock. to be clear, uh, your listeners, these are rocks with googly eyes on them. Right. Sorry. Rocks with googly eyes on them. So I was like, these are all pet rocks. They're all named Dwayne. You could change their names if you want to, but they wouldn't be as awesome because all of the best rocks are named Dwayne. And then and people like came by and took them and loved them. It was very fun. Like, yeah, people. And I put that I put it on a couple of our like neighborhood Facebook groups and everybody came by with their kids. It was July 4th weekend. So like I ran out of Dwayne's in like a minute. It was great. Wow. I had little adoption certificates for the Dwayne's. So people wow. were like sending me their adoption certificates and sending me pictures of their Dwayne's at their own homes. And it was very cute. Somebody sent me a picture of a Dwayne on an airplane back when we were all taking planes. Um, still, it was very cute. And then I made a. And then a friend of mine gave me like a bag of river rocks when he was cleaning out his garage. And in the bag were these like little glass pebbles, you know, that, that like uh-huh. he faces with. Yeah. And I was, and I made like one reply to a comment on a Facebook post that wasn't even mine that 
uh, where I, I was just joking that as soon as I could figure out how to glue, like as soon as I could find a glue that would stick to the coating that was on the little glass things, I was going to glue googly eyes onto those two and name them all Ira. Because yes. just as Ira all of the best rocks are named Dwayne, all of the best glasses named Ira. Um, <laughs> and I was taking a stand against Philip. I know that there's a Philip glass and I don't care. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm team Ira. They are okay. two cousins. They're cousins. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think like not like first cousins or anything. Sure, but, they but wow. The, They're in the same family. So I thought that, that was really funny. But I then, so then a couple of days later, my husband comes up from the garage, which is right next to where the tiny museum is. And he says, um, I really like how the iris turned out. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, all of the little glass pets that are on the tiny. And I was like, I didn't. I didn't make any. He's like, well, you might want to go downstairs and look. And somebody had left a trail of little glass pebbles all leading up to the gift shop and then like plopped a few into the gift shop with googly eyes. Oh my God. So like someone had seen this and just decided I'm going to do this. And then like I posted this with the mystery and I posted it to all of the, all of the neighborhood groups that I had posted the original museum and everyone was like in on trying to solve this mystery to this day I don't know who started this I don't know who did it I I have I have one idea but she is not answering any of my communication (laughs) um I think it's a neighbor of mine and she just won't admit it but I think it's her um and then like somebody dropped off shells with googly eyes with a little note that they were silversteins and then somebody dropped off ladybugs like rocks painted as ladybugs and those were ladybug gagas. Uh-huh. Um, and then we had B. Arthur's and Billy Crystal's and Robert Plant's and Alicia Keys and Benjamin Buttons and like Kirsten Bell's was a recent one. We've had like 50 or 60 of them. Like really incredible. like dozens incredible. and dozens of them. That people and are I just only, doing. They're just doing it. They're like, just doing honestly, it. And I don't know who they are. Right. For the most part, I don't know who they are. I, Brie did one. What did she do? Brie did chips. She took two little wood chips and glued them together and put googly eyes on them. And they were Ponch and John so that they were chips. <laughs> and I, it was so funny. But the only reason I know that it was her was because I was out changing the exhibit when her daughter ran out of the car and then went, crap, and ran back into the car. <laughs> so I saw them do it. <laughs> Um, but like, I mostly don't know who's been doing this and it's just like, it's been a total joy. Like the whole neighborhood has gotten in on it. Like someone came from people from not this neighborhood have gotten in on it. Like the ladybug gagas apparently were from Utah. I don't understand how that happened. Okay. What? Yeah. Like I I assume somebody was out here on like a trip. Yeah. And then just decided like their family or something brought them by this museum, but they left a note that was like, we are from Utah. Did you start an Instagram about this? I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We're, we'll link to uh, that. The tiny at 706, which okay. is just. Yeah. So like this, so oh, I love it so much. And I, I've, I've actually thought about it a lot about why it's so delightful. And part of it is the whimsy of it, which yeah. you 100% get credit for, right? That is the thing that sparked all of it. But I think what makes it so delightful is that it's the collaborative process of this thing that has no 
function except to be creative and bring joy. And no. that people didn't wait for permission. They just started doing it. Well, it was like, it's a meme. It's a live action meme. Yes, yes, yes. Right? So there's like no purpose except that it's funny. Yeah. And like, I've had people tell me like, I just, I like, I'm just trying to think of something that I can add to this wow. and I haven't done it yet. And I'm just trying to think like, I can't, I can't figure it out. Somebody came by my favorite so far, I think is somebody came by with little felt guitar picks with giant false eyelashes on them and googly eyes. And those were Billy eyelashes <laughs> and I just, and Billy Eilish actually lives in, in my neighborhood. Uh -huh. So like, then a bunch of people were like, well, we gotta tell her parents who live in the neighborhood and see if she will come out here. And I don't know if she ever came by. I have no uh -huh. idea. You like, I'm 42. I don't know anything about Billy Eilish. Um, <laughs> but it was, but the thing that's funny is that like, Early on, when I when I came up with the idea for the Iras, I was joking with a friend of mine that like we were coming up with all sorts of like, oh, we should do a James Woods and we should do a like, you know, we were coming up with them. And then I was like, no, I can't do it because if I make the same joke over and over again, it's just not it's like it's not right. funny. It stops right, being right. funny. But but the neighborhood making up the same joke over again, it turns out is hilarious. Right. Right. It's funny every time. Yes. It's funny yes. every time. Yes. And just the, uh, there's this uh, perpetual element of surprise and yeah. Uh, yeah, like, and the, and the fact that they, that they are going through such great pains to not be credited is what's so amazing. Like if you don't like, they're trying not to be. I know. <laughs> like I, I just, I don't even. Stories. Yeah, no, I think that's, Love that's it. a, absolutely fantastic thing and I I god I don't know why I love it so much I just do so what are the exhibits so we opened with two exhibits the first one was called last call mm -hmm. and it was a collection of all of the not all of but a collection of the last things that me and friends of mine had bought before we realized that the world had changed completely yeah. for the pandemic. So like I went into lockdown on March 13th and on March 9th, I bought a new pair of high heels and a lipstick. Oh. And I like, I've still never worn those heels and I only know where the lipstick is because I put it in the museum. Right. The, the heels are still in their box in the closet. Um, a friend of mine bought pimple patches and she was like, I don't like, like seriously, like March 10th or something like that. And she is like, I have a zoom filter. No one's ever going to see my real face again. Right. Like, I don't need these now. Right. <laughs> um, I, a friend of mine bought a gym, like a business. Oh my God. March 12th. <sighs> oh. March 12th in Texas. Oh, he's just like, I'm I feel for her. She's like really struggling. A friend of mine bought walking shoes and then literally the next day they closed down the walking path that she, around the Rose Bowl that she normally walked. Wow. So like, just all like that collection of things that I thought was so telling mm -hmm. um, about like what our lives were like and what we prioritize to spend our money on yeah. before, before this moment. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, another friend bought a car. Um, and then like the only mileage that was on the car was her driving back to her house from the college car dealership. Wow. So she bought it in March and this was July and there were like 50 miles on this car. 
Um, and only because the car dealership was far away. Right. Um, and then we had another exhibit called My White Fragility. Oh. Because we opened up in July and I clearly yeah. had all of the June protests like really on my mind. Um, and at the time, the conversations that I was having with my friends were very much centered on this like reckoning of where we were in our very white spaces, right? Um, mm -hmm. And and talking, not like, I don't wanna reduce the conversations just to white fragility, but in the early days of like recognizing the this point and of like talking with my friends about like those moments in our lives when we really prioritized our comfort over doing the right thing right. or saying the right thing or standing right. up for the right thing. Um, so I talked to a lot, specifically my white women friends, including myself, including my sister. Uh, we are Mizrahi Jews, but we, we maneuver in white spaces without question or concern. So in the power and privilege dynamic of American race, we are white. Right. Um, Imam half Syrian and Yemeni, but whatever. So I, uh, I asked them for their stories and they wrote key phrases from their stories in their own handwriting and sent them to me. And I transferred them to embroidery wow. in their handwriting and did nice. like embroidery around them. Um, and then posted them, like put them up with the stories in these little three inch embroidery hoops. So that was like, I really liked that exhibit. That was a really powerful exhibit. That's very thoughtful. Yeah. Um, and then the next exhibit that we did was called New Year, New You. It was just a little joke year, but it was basically like 2020 is terrible. So you should get to have a new year earlier if you would like it, like before January 1st. So here are all the new years that are coming up between now and January 1st. So it was the Jewish New Year, the Islamic New Year, um, Ethiopian New Year, Diwali. And I think there was one other one I don't remember. Uh -huh. um, so I had little displays of like the things that people use for these celebrations. Um, oh, and then the real new year, which was going to be November 3rd, which was our election. <laughs> right. um, and then there was like information on how to vote and stuff right. in there because we are not a 501c3 because we are not a real museum. <laughs> <laughs> so I can be as political as I want to be. Good for you. <laughs> um, and then the exhibit that's out there now is called the Pandemia Awards. Oh which my I am God. Very entertained by, which by the way, I put up before the Daily Show did their Pandemia Awards. I did okay. not know the Daily Show was doing a Pandemia Awards, but you ours went up first. You get the credit. Yeah, I get the credit. Well, I just want people to know that I wasn't copying it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fine if it had coexisted, but I didn't copy it. Okay. Anyway, I, uh, this was true, like deep dive obsession. I got trophies made wow. for all of the things that I think like wouldn't be hard in normal times, but are super fucking hard in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there's, there's one for stayed married, which again, I do think people get this award. Uh, that, <laughs> I'm keeping that one. Um, there's one for stayed alive. Oh, there's one for didn't kill anyone uh, there's one for finished netflix and one for didn't cry for 48 hours that one was breeze i'm gonna give it to her when i take this exhibit down um and then there's a little box on top of like next to our gift shop on top of our museum now where you can fill out a little card 
and nominate yourself for a Pandemi Award for whatever it is that you feel like you deserve an award for because you should definitely get one. Amazing. Um, and then there's little award ribbons that you can take with you where there's like a space for you to write your name and a space for you to write what you won the award ribbon for and a Sharpie so you can do it, obviously. Amazing. And unbelievably, no one has stolen a Sharpie. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, and it's been like a few months. Sharpies are pretty valuable. Yeah, and I put it up in like September. Wow. September, October. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, we've, we've, we've been talking for over an hour now. Oh my gosh. I know. Like, how does this happen? Every time I it's do so one of these damn podcasts, I, it's so, ah, I just get like carried away. Um, uh, you are awesome. Like you are 100% awesome. So are and you. I have to give, like, I do have to give Brie a shout out because, like, some of the, yeah. the the best people I know have come through Brie Laskoda. Me and too. So, yeah. Like, she's just one of those, like, people that is a, if if she introduces you to somebody, you're like, this is going to be a good mm-hmm. one. Yeah. She is the hub of all that is cool in the universe. I agree with that. I do. I do. I'm going to agree with out from it. her. Yeah, I don't know if she, I think she kind of knows it, but I don't think she knows how rad she is or how many people she's impacted. Um, I hope someday she figures that out because, or, or, you know, know, we keep trying to tell her. Yeah, I try to tell her on a semi-regular basis, but. Yeah, she she just like, because she's so cool, it just like slides off of her. Yeah. 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 Well, we will, uh, we will, uh, I'm actually going to talk to her next week. Um, so or maybe it's this week. Maybe it's this week sometime. Uh, and uh, we'll be, I'll be sure to, uh, to let her know, to listen to this episode so that she's properly chuffed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nama, thank you so much for taking time. This has been absolutely delightful. And I really, really cannot wait till I'm able to come back to LA oh me too yes I will make such a feast I can't wait such a feast I just want and I also want my listeners to know that this entire time if I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a screenshot your dog Nama is sitting in this little office there's a olive green couch behind her and her dog is just like luxuriously laid out there belly flopped on the side oblivious yeah she uh, this dog is living it up Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. that's his favorite spot there there's actually believe it or not another dog he's just under he's under the couch (laughs) what is this Uh, dog's name this one is milo Milo. the one who's under the couch is jet and the big one in the house is ginger so we have three now okay uh three wow three there were the use until very recently there were four so we miss, oh, wow. we miss our Lola. Did, did I tell you the, we, had, we got guinea pigs? So. We, we started the oh, pandemic yeah. with two cats. And now we have two cats, two guinea pigs, a fish, and a really fat frog. I love the frog. Every time you post pictures of your thick frog, I'm like, this is the best. I need more pictures of the frog. <laughs> and I love that you posted pictures of the guinea pig bath time. Like, that oh was, my God. That was I, so good. They look so small when they're wet. I know. I feel like such a fool for being head over heels in love with these little rodents, but no, they are so They're so sweet. cute. Yeah. They're so, they're so sweet. Cute. Yeah. I have a cousin in Toronto who has, who's just like, she always has had two guinea pigs at any really? given time. 
and she just she loves them they are like her she doesn't have children they are like her babies I like they don't live that long so every time they die I'm like heartbroken for her because she is heartbroken yeah but they're 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 loving like they have little personalities they do I'm I'm shocked I thought they would just be like hamsters which are kind of meh I mean, I guess yeah. hamsters have personalities, but, you know, we had them growing up and it's like, Meh. I mean, these guys are so, like, you can see their sisters is from the same litter. So you mm-hmm. can see their, like, personalities differences and they're, um, they're so cuddly. They just, like, you can sit there while you work and they'll, like, sit in your hoodie and just hang out, hang out with you all day. It's so cute. It's so cute. It's so cute. I'm telling you. Look, we all need cute things right now. Yeah, we I do. Think that's cute. It's welcome. Yes. Amen. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.